hppodcraft.com has revealed a world of wonder where life should not exist. Depths that have been beyond the reach of humans until now. The lieutenant stood in front of the steel sphere and gnawed a piece of pine splinter. What do you think of it, Stevens? He said. It's an idea, said Stevens, in the tone of one who keeps an open mind. I believe it'll smash flat, said the lieutenant. He seems to have calculated it all out pretty well, said Stevens, still impartial. But think of the pressure, said the lieutenant. At the surface of the water, it's 14 pounds to the inch. 30 feet down, it's double that. 60, treble, 94 times. 940 times. 5,300, that's a mile, it's 240 times 14 pounds. That's Let's see, thirty hundred weight, a ton and a half, Stevens, a ton and a half to the square inch. And the ocean where he's going is five miles deep. That's seven and a half. Sounds a lot, said Stevens, but it's jolly thick steel. The lieutenant made no answer, but resumed his pine splinter. What the hell are these guys talking about? <laughs> I'm not sure. I just heard a bunch of numbers. I thought it was at an auction for a minute. 60, treble, 94 times, 940 times, 5,300, that's a mile. Quicked my nose at one point during that reading. <laughs> and it goes to Lackey. <laughs> yes, I win. It's not an auction, however. That, what we heard there, were the opening lines of the H.G. Wells story, In the Abyss. Ah, and we're going to discuss it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer, and uh, we are dipping our toes into the murky depths of Fishman Month as part of Monster Party 2014. Sounds great. Our reader that you just heard there was one of our favorites, John Hancock. He has a voice like a whale song. What? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It is quite beautiful and sonorous. Now, we got some great suggestions for what to name June here since it's Fishman Month. But first, let's talk about who is making this show possible. Ladies and gentlemen, it's our sponsor, Warpo. Warpo making yesterday's toys. That's right. Warpo is a company that makes vintage toys that never existed. Right. It's as if they were genetically engineered to be the perfect sponsor for us. They are launching a Kickstarter today for their brand new toy line, which is called Legends of Cthulhu. I am so psyched about these toys. They have four figures in the set and you can see them on the page. It's a cultist, a deep one, spawn of Cthulhu, which is basically looks like Cthulhu. Yeah. And the professor. The figures and the packaging, they all look like they were made in 1979. Warpo did a ton of research. They hired sculptors and artists from the period. I mean, they really got it spot on. So immediately go to warpo.com slash kickstarter. There are a few different pledge levels there that will allow you to receive one or all of the figures. But for the listeners of this show, there is also an exclusive Irem Idol bonus accessory that you can get. Now, if you recall from Call Cthulhu, Irem is the city of pillars that one of the captured cultists says is the center of the cult of Cthulhu. And you can have it. (laughs) That's right. It's a really cool little accessory, which I probably, if I got it, would hide away and never share with anybody. I mean, how were you with the guns and accessories for your action figures when you were a kid? As well, I had a little brother, so I had to be very careful with those. Usually I put those all in a special baggie that yeah. I had that kept all those away from my little brother. One of my friends was insistent that they always had the guns in their hands because you know when you put the gun in the Star Wars figure's hand it would kind of shoot off in a weird way uh-huh. and I remember flipping out because he had one of my stormtroopers and he bit the hand. Or to bend it? To bend it so that the gun would wear. I was like no what are you doing? Uh... <laughs> anyway you can get the Eram Idol if you pledge at the spawn summoning level or higher at the Kickstarter yep. and then after you check out send Warpo a private message by clicking the contact me button on the the Kickstarter page. Mm-hmm. And in the email, just type the secret code word 
HP Podcraft. That's it. That's the secret code word. Go check out their video. It sells it. They do this vintage commercial at the very beginning, which totally feels like the commercials of the period. It's it's awesome. <laughs> but don't, yeah, don't listen to us. Just go check it out and you will see that it is awesome. And you don't even need any proofs of purchases or anything. <laughs> I was so happy I sent in all my proofs of purchase to get the Emperor action oh, picture. Sure. Emperor, your child. Boba Fett, dude. Oh, you got Boba Fett that way? You bet I got Boba Fett that way. Oh, wow. I'm not normally a super nostalgic kind of guy, but these Warpo figures, they really sell it to me. And it's just something inside of it trips those triggers and I just love them. What you have to do is if you know a toy collector, a vintage toy collector, you got to buy these and then mix them in with the toys that they already have. <laughs> so that when they'll get they'll get all confused about it, you got to say, what are you talking about? You've always had that Cthulhu figure. Since you were a small child, don't you remember? <laughs> Johnny, what's happening? That would be a great joke, too, if you put it in there and then waited a while. Yeah. A few weeks and then kind of bring it up casually in conversation. And when he goes back home <laughs> and then he would find it, it would, it would blow his mind. That, yeah. That's awesome. Warpo.com. W-A-R-P-O slash Kickstarter. You will not be disappointed by these toy versions of horrific aquatic monsters. That's right. You will not, which is the theme of our month, horrific aquatic monsters. And now to get back to the names for this month, a few people suggested that we call the month. This is before we picked the theme, even. Right. They, suggest, they suggested we called it Kaiju, <laughs> which I love. That's pretty good. Yeah. But there aren't any giant monster stories, really, in supernatural horn literature. There aren't. I mean, at least not that I could find. I was positive that at least Arthur Mackin wrote at least one Mothra story, you know, <laughs> but I couldn't find it in there. Yeah, this must have been a dream you had. I yeah. don't think that really happened. Maybe next summer we'll figure out a way to do a giant monster theme month because that's a great idea. But we're sticking yeah. with the Fishman theme right now. So here's some of the other suggestions we got. Neptune. Oh, that's good. Uh, Ichthyologune. Ichthi <laughs> <laughs> a little tough to say, but very clever. Uh, Junesmith or Junesmith. Oh, okay. You know, like, like Insmith. Uh, Insmith, yeah. Gelatinous June. Which I know a stripper with that name, so we can't use it. No. I am the walrus, Goo Goo Gajoon. <laughs> which I really like. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh. And uh, creatures from the Black Lagoon. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I Black think that might, a few people suggested that one, and I think I think that's pretty darn good. I like that one a lot. Yeah. So, and it's also it's about as awkward as marches for Dracula's to say so <laughs> oh yeah there you go June is creatures from the black Lejeune. I like it so we're kicking off this month with in the abyss now we've already covered one of the best fishman stories fishhead by Irvin S. Cobb yeah that was really a good story would have been appropriate for this month although was he really a fishman or was he because wasn't he just maybe a deformed guy but he could talk to fish and stuff he looked like a fish he looked like a fish but I don't know if he was actually of you know evolved into being a fish or if he was just had some deformities. Yeah, right. All I'm saying is that, you know, versus this story. Uh, which is probably better because, spoiler alert, there's actually Fishman in it. In Supernatural Horror and Literature, Lovecraft said, Mention has been made of the weird work of H.G. Wells. In The Ghost of Fear, he reaches a very high level, while all of the items in 30 Strange Stories have strong fantastic implications. In the Abyss was included in 30 Strange Stories. I'm sure he read it. There are similarities to the temple as well, but... Yeah. Let's get into it. Okay. So we're at the beginning. We're on this boat, and these two guys are talking about a third guy and this his submersible. Mm -hmm. uh, Lieutenant Weybridge is who we heard calculating all the different pressures that would be on this craft the lower it would sink. And he just really doesn't think this whole thing is going to work. But the other guy that he's talking to, Stevens, he thinks, no, I think it has a pretty good chance, or at least he's not that worried about it. And the submersible is this round globe, which is about nine feet in diameter, that is on the boat 
that they're on out at sea, and they're going to obviously drop it into the water at some point. Yes. Now, the lieutenant thinks that it won't stand the pressure and the water will crush the guy inside, who we find out is called Elstead. And the lieutenant goes on in the to great detail about how he thinks this guy is going to die. <laughs> you know, the pressure is going to smash him into paste and spread him around the inside. He says, like, butter over bread, which was great. <laughs> um, and I don't get the sense that he wants this to happen, but he's just so positive that it's going to. He's fixated on all of the awful details right. of what the results are going to be. In the submersible, it's just this kind of big ball of steel. It's got a couple of thick windows. And that's what he's worried about is the glass. He thinks exactly. that the glass is not going to hold. Yeah. And inside there are all of these pillows ratcheted to the walls so that I guess the person inside doesn't get hurt as it rolls around sure. down to the bottom of the ocean. I think it's they're saying it's going to go five miles. This is further down than anybody's gone into the depths. Right. 30 Strange Stories came out in 1897. So this is not something that anybody had done. We hadn't sent any robots down there to have a look at anything. Oh, really? There was no James Cameron yet. What year was that when James Cameron? Well, James Cameron just did it recently. That was after 1897 when that That happened? was after 1897. That's oh, right. okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, just as he's repeating this uh, like butter over bread line, Elston comes up behind them and he makes a comment about them checking out the submersible, but he doesn't seem to notice that they were talking about him. Yeah, he's very nonchalant. And then he goes into, obviously he's confident because he really believes in the device they've created here. And then he gives that very H.G. Wells breakdown of, of what the globe is and how it works because you get the sense this is part of the reason he wanted to write this story. Yeah. So first he's going to get screwed up into this sphere. They swing it out over the over the water with this crane and then they drop it in. Now there's a bunch of lead weights below it that are yeah. going to go down first and hit the ground. And, uh, and then there's a, a long cord on one of the weights that also will drop down, obviously, and there's a clockwork mechanism that is going to control the speed with which this thing descends. So basically, they don't want it to drop too fast. What Elstead says is, to keep me from crashing down onto the ground and blowing up at the bottom of the ocean, this will slow my descent, so that by the time I get to the bottom, I'll be going very slowly and I can land softly. And then we're going to, the clockwork will cut the cord, and I'll go shooting to the top when I want to get out of here. Right. And then that would be a bad thing to do because if you do that, obviously they don't know about the bends because right. um, that could possibly kill you. And the bends, in case people out there don't know exactly what that is, this decompression sickness, which is caused by having your, when you go down under deep pressure, the air itself gets compressed. Mm -hmm. So the air that you're breathing is actually compressed air and it gets into your bloodstream compressed. So when you start coming up, the air will expand in your bloodstream and it could cause all types of really yeah. bad things to happen to you. Um, mostly, I think they said that initially it's joint problems, like your joints will really start to hurt. Uh -huh. uh, and then you, know, you can pass out, you can have all these other types of problems, you can have a, a brain hemorrhage, you can, it can kill you conceivably Yikes. Uh, by going up. So, so when you come up, you have to come up a little ways and wait for your body to adjust and then come up a little bit more and adjust and come up a little bit more. So a quick uh, rise to the surface is a bad idea. So basically, don't try this. Don't try it. Don't don't use this as a blueprint for your own no. craft. The thing that they're worried about is that if it shoots when it shoots up so fast, they better be clear of it because it could go right through a boat like a bullet. That's the yeah. concern that Wells has here. So after we, we kind of get the lowdown on what the craft is and what their plan is, we go to 11 a.m. Elstead's all ready to go down into the deep. They lower the submersible out over the water. Crane does its business. They drop it and boom, it goes down. A shark goes by. <laughs> I think there's a little shark tease there, right? Yeah, there, uh, nothing happens. I got excited. I'm like, ooh, shark. Uh, but they wait around. This is, a, this is a really interesting 
section here. The submersible goes down, and then we stay with everybody on the boat for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, they steam to a new position to get out of the way because they assume it's going to come up pretty soon. Right. It's going to go down there for an hour or so, and then he's going to come back up. Uh, hour past his due time. No one says anything. Everybody's just kind of quiet and waiting until Lieutenant Weybridge says, I always distrusted that window. They're doing their best to be optimistic. Obviously, Weybridge is not joining them in that. But most of the people are, you know, maybe the calculations were a little off or maybe he's had a little difficulty with this. Let's keep waiting. Let's keep waiting. And it's interesting that Wells chose to do this because there's a couple of concepts he wants to get across in this story. But Mm -hmm. clearly he understands that suspense is the best way to keep a reader hooked. Mm -hmm. And so instead of following Elstead down just as soon as he went under, he lingered up here on purpose because he's making us wonder, is he dead? What might have happened? What could have gone on? Increasing the sense of wonder before he gets into it. It's just a really smart choice. Wells always seems to build a a suspense element into his story. Back to the story. They stick around all day and into the night. And about midnight, one of the crew shouts out, Elstead Ahoy, and the spear has come up. Boom. They get to the spear. They take some time to actually get it hooked up and pulled onto the boat. They pop it open. It's super hot inside, super steamy and hot and gross. And no one answers. The doctor rushes in, finds Elstead unconscious, but alive. Yes, he's alive. They they put him in bed. And it takes about a week for him to get into the kind of health where you can discuss what happened to him. For a couple of days, he has to lie perfectly still. But finally, after a week, he can start speaking and describe what happened. And of course, the first thing he says is, I have to go back. I have to go back. There was just a little adjustment that needed to be made. And if we do that right this time, it'll, everything will work perfectly and I can go again. So obviously, it wasn't a terrible thing that happened to him down there. No. They want to know what it is. And he says, well, there's a new world down there. He gets a little mad scientist about it. You thought I should find nothing but ooze, he said. You laughed at my explorations and I've discovered a new world. He goes on to tell that before the cord ran out, he tumbled in the sphere. Like he's, this is him relating his story. Yeah, it went spinning around. And eventually it stabilized and he was able to look around, but it got darker and darker. The deeper he went, he began to see small, faintly phosphorescent things in the water. And that's that great, what have I done moment as he's sinking down where he just starts to think about, you know, there are a lot of rumors about strange creatures down here that have taken bites out of ships. And right, yeah. Did I properly test this sphere? Uh, there's another shark tease here. I think a shark flows by at one point. Yeah. You know, when you commit to a course of action in your life and those terrible, terrible moments at the beginning of it, why am I doing this? What did I do? Why? Right. But he eventually calms. The deeper he gets, it gets completely black, except for the light from the sphere. And it's getting a lot warmer not because the water's getting warmer necessarily, but because the speed at which he's ascending is causing a lot of friction on the right. vessel. And so uh-huh. steam is starting to pour in around it. Really, he's finally figured out this was the thing I didn't think of. It's the friction and the heat that's going to get me. Right, because the, the water is very cold and the the ship itself will heat up and then it would crack the glass. And that's yeah. his concern. Again, I'm not sure of the science behind this. This sounds like that one that you wouldn't get that hot from <laughs> the friction of water. Maybe I, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe somebody that's more scientifically uh, minded than us could write in or in the comments tell us about the scientific validity of this. But it sounded pretty ridiculous to me. I could I just go into the bathroom, like fill up the tub with water, and start throwing punches into the water. See if my fists get really hot. Okay, you go do that, and I'll wait here. Okay. No, it's, yeah, it didn't get that hot. Yeah, and I, I punch really fast. Oh, I know you do. People used to call you Fast Punch Pfeiffer. <laughs> Back in school. Finally, that's come in handy for science. 
for science. Eventually, he starts slowing down in the vessel, and it all holds together. It's another kind of cool set piece. I mean, uh-huh. you can imagine. I, I felt scared for him as this was happening. Yeah. But it all holds together. He's cool. He gets down to the bottom. Through the window, he starts seeing some kind of weird stuff, right? Yeah, a little fish uh, with some uh, huge heads and big eyes and tiny little bodies and little tails. They kind of seem to be following him. They were attracted by the glare, the lights from his vessel. But a lot of his vis- visibility disappears as a result of hitting the bottom because all of the dust get, gets kicked up. Right. And so he, he just, just sort of a thin fog for a while. So he's just aiming his lamp around. Or I don't even know if he can control it, but uh, he can turn it on and off at least. Yeah. Looking through the light, trying to figure out what's out there. There's little fishes and then something kind of dimly in the distance. Something that comes up to him is vaguely the shape of a man moves forward, but it kind of recoils from the light. It was a strange vertebrated animal. Its dark purple head was dimly suggestive of a chameleon, but it had such a high forehead and such a brain case as no reptile ever displayed before. The vertical pitch of its face gave it a most extraordinary resemblance to a human being. Two large and protruding eyes projected from sockets in chameleon fashion, and it had a broad reptilian mouth with horny lips beneath its little nostrils. In the position of the ears were two huge gill covers, and out of these floated a branching tree of coralline filaments, almost like the tree-like gills that very young rays and sharks possess. But the humanity of the face was not the most extraordinary thing about the creature. It was a biped. Its almost globular body was poised on a tripod of two frog-like legs and a long, thick tail, and its forelimbs, which grotesquely caricatured the human hand, much as the frogs do, carried a long shaft of bone, tipped with copper. The colour of the creature was variegated. Its head, hands and legs were purple, but its skin, which hung loosely upon it, even as clothes might do, was a phosphorescent grey and it stood there, blinded by the light. Wow. And we have it, our first uh, Fishman appearance here in Creatures from the Black Lagoon. (laughs) (laughs) It's very, very creepy. It's creepy, and it does, some of those descriptions do hang like the Innsmouth descriptions. You can see it definitely having an influence on Lovecraft. Yeah, so this creature lets out this kind of loud sound, moves out of the light, but he can still, you know, he can hear something out there, and then... He turns out, I think he turns off his lamp so that his eyes can adjust to the darkness, so he can make out what's going on a little better. But then the sphere starts to move. Something's moving it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's more shapes out there that he can't quite see. Just as he was reaching to turn on the interior light, the sphere spins again mm-hmm. because of whatever it is outside that's moving it around, and he falls. When he got up, he saw two stalked eyes looking at him. And then he heard this banging sound coming from underneath where the clockwork area is. And he thought, oh, man, if they damaged the cutting device, he would be trapped. Yeah. So he turned the light on in because he has an interior light. So he turned that on. He kind of tried to shine it through one of the other ports to see if he could see what was going on down there. But there was nothing there. It was gone. And then he felt himself moving upwards as though maybe they cut the cord. And then (laughs) he gets it goes, you know, so he starts to go really fast and then he gets slammed up against the roof again and stops suddenly. Yeah, there's a great line that says it feels like he was being towed as a balloon might be towed by men out of the open country into a town. Yeah. He's sort of floating along and can see these shapes, but everything's moving around. And what he realizes is that these creatures, and they're dragging his vessel along to somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere. And it's, it's like he starts to see these lights in the distance, 
and it seems like there's some kind of underwater city down here. As he gets closer, he can see that it's uh, there are streets and houses. And they're buildings, but they, they don't have roofs on them, right. which is kind of strange. He says that it kind of reminds him of a, a ruined abbey. They have walls, though, and the yeah. substance seems to be strange, but it looks like maybe it's made of phosphorescent bones of some kind. It's things that they were able to scavenge and put together into these. Yeah. Into these houses, but it's definitely, it seems like a human city of some kind. Yeah. The open spaces of the place, he sees all of these crowds. of. There's a lot of these creatures. Yeah. But it's hard for him to pick out individuals yet because they're so far away. But they start to reel him in and he starts getting closer and closer and closer to them. And mm-hmm. as he descends, he's, he descends right by a large building in the center of this town. And he catches glimpses of multitudes of these forms that are pulling on the cord to bring yeah. him in. He could see more and more as he got closer and closer. This building, he describes it, was uh, made of waterlogged wood, a twisted wire rope, iron spars and copper, and the bones and skulls of dead men. Mm-hmm. The skulls ran in zigzag lines and spirals and fantastic curves over the building and in and out of their eye sockets and over the whole surface of the place lurked and played a multitude of silvery little fishes. Yeah, a really crazy scene. Yeah. And they, they pull his ship down and he sees a lot of these creatures bow to him yeah. and start kind of chanting. You can hear the, the sound of it. He turns on his interior light. Some of them run away from that. They're obviously light bothers them. Mm-hmm. But others shout as if it's some kind of miracle or something like that. And he, he can't because of the light, he can't see what they're doing. So he, he turns it off. But as his eyes adjusted, it's definitely what's going on here. They're worshiping him. Yeah. Or they're worshiping the vessel. Him or the vessel or both. I don't know. Uh, the narrator steps out of the story and says that uh, as strange as this is, his story that he's telling, it's even stranger that science doesn't rule it out, that this mm-hmm. thing is very possible. Just to step out and he says, hey, you know, we could have evolved along a different track. Sure. And these are, because we all came up out of the slime, these guys just stayed down there. Yeah. It's kind of a Shoggoth thing almost. Or, yeah, I was thinking, you know, maybe the Abyss. Yeah. James Cameron maybe was heavily influenced by the story. I don't know. In the Abyss? Abyss? <laughs> the Abyss? Definitely. And, and Cameron made this trip, which we referenced earlier, but he right. very recently, in 2012, it's really interesting if you look at the vessel that he used, because it's actually not that different than what Wells describes. But he took, and he's the first person to ever do this, he did a solo voyage to the floor of the Mariana Trench, which is seven miles deep. It's the ocean's deepest Yeah, he did this in 2012. He's got a little vessel he could barely, uh, I mean, it just kind of folds around him. It's almost, it looks kind of narrow. Did he have to have that liquid oxygen stuff? That, uh... <laughs> no, he didn't. Oh, but, it, but it's this pretty scary trip if you think about it. I mean, he just went down there in this one-man vessel that is wrapped around him and wow. dropped seven miles into the ocean, I mean, which is further down than Mount Everest is high Yeah, by himself. And he was down there for several hours. I think he wanted to be, I think he was down there for like eight hours. What? And and he wanted to be there longer. Because he saw a, a, a city of fish people? There's some air. Now, when he came back up, I could be wrong about the eight hour part, but he was down there for multiple hours and they did ask him, you know, what were you hoping to see? And he was direct about it. He's like, I was hoping to see some giant monsters or maybe, <laughs> a, you know, a city of people. But unfortunately it was just really dark. There were some, you know. But you can go, we'll, we'll put some links up. It was kind of crazy that, yeah, he made The Abyss, he made Titanic, and then he actually went down there and did it, yeah. what this guy is doing in the story. He stopped filmmaking because he was so into the ocean stuff yeah. for a long time. Like, after Titanic, he didn't make anything until Avatar, and that was, like, what, 15, 20 years, just because he was so into ocean exploration. Anyway, there is a movie of this called Deep Sea Challenge, and it's out, or it should be due out in August, I think, of this year. So if you want to see it, check it out. Anyhow, the other thing that they jump 
the narrator says, hey, this is entirely possible. The other thing he says is it's also not crazy that they would worship things that came down to them. He says, you know, it wouldn't just be our skulls or dead bodies that would come down there. It would be our metals, our appliances, anything that gets, you know, that we dispose of in the ocean that eventually makes its way down there. They're not going to know what its actual use is. And to them, it just comes from the sky. It's like a cargo cult. Sure. Which happened in the South Pacific after World War II. Right. Because of all of the airdrops, there were these Pacific Islanders who started worshipping the items and thinking that if they did certain rites that the gods would gift them with more of the stuff. This has happened throughout history in lots of different places. I don't know if it had ever happened pr- prior to this story coming out. It, it's cool that he brings it out here. I mean, you're learning something from the, from the story conceptually. I think we could talk about it more at the end, but sure. a really cool idea. Then he, then he comes back to the story. He says he tried to communicate with them and... You know, I don't know what that means exactly. Probably giving hand gestures to, for them to cut the cord so that he can get out of there mm. uh, because he only had a few hours worth of air left. Yeah. Uh, but they just kept chanting and eventually he just sort of panics and nothing's happening and they're not acknowledging him really. Eventually he passes out. Yeah. And he doesn't know how he returned. The next thing he remembers, he says, was, you know, waking up in that room that he's in now. Right. But looking at now, he's had time to look at the vessel, and he thinks that what it was is the cord looks like it was it was rubbed against maybe an altar that that his vessel was above. The cord was rubbing up against that because in the the movement of the ocean, it was going back and forth, back and right. forth, and that cut the rope. So it was just dumb luck that he was able to escape. And what what did those fishmen think? I wonder as it went shooting back up into the sky that their god was returning back to his home. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess. Ah, man, it's, it has to be pretty pretty crazy. They go on to say this is kind of stepping out of, of his story. Mm-hmm. Now they're talking about this is the story, what, what we've just read, was put together from what people in the crew said because Elstead didn't write anything down. Yeah, he was too busy. He was too busy getting the thing ready to go back down again. As he did, he got everything ready and he went back down again. Yeah. And this is how the story ends. It remains only to tell that on February 2nd, 1896, he made his second descent into the ocean abyss, with the improvements his first experience suggested. What happened, we shall probably never know. He never returned. The ptarmigan beat about over the point of his submersion, seeking him in vain for 13 days. Then she returned to Rio, and the news was telegraphed to his friends. So the matter remains for the present. But it is hardly probable that no further attempt will be made to verify his strange story of these hitherto unsuspected cities of the deep sea. A warning to the curious. Pretty ominous, too. Yeah. Well, maybe things turned out happily. I don't I, How could they work out for him? I don't know. There's no air down there. What was going to happen? He's, it's not going to work out, period. Did, how did it work out in Splash? Splash? Well, she had a magic power. If she kissed you, you could breathe underwater. Well, there you go. I think love can overcome anything. So if he fell in love with one of the fish ladies, that she would kiss him and then he'd be able to breathe down there? It's possible. I mean, there's evidence for it, as we just cited. True. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to relent. Little Mermaid has some of that cargo cult stuff going on, too, doesn't it? She does, yeah. That's, she's yeah. got all the little things. What do you call it? Hair. You know that stuff? <laughs> That's fine. Is that what she said? I says? don't know. She what said, do you, what call do you call them? Feet. Human teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think bones last very long in the water, so I think it's probably a bad idea to make things out of bones in ocean water. Oh, really? You yeah, should they rot away that. pretty pretty fast, I believe. Well, what do you think of the story? Did you like it? Uh, yeah. I The beginning was a little rough for me. All the, the exp- explanation of the sphere and how it worked, uh, mm-hmm. because to me, I could care less. I wanted to get to the actual 
meat of the story when he goes down. Uh-huh. And I, I liked it. once once they got past all the his explaining his overly technical stuff of something that kind of now we're in an age where people actually do do these things. Mm-hmm. It seems kind of silly. Oh yeah, but sometimes that's part of the fun. I mean, I like space exploration stories where they come up with different theories of how to get up there. Oh right. So I didn't mind so much. Isn't it Man, man in the Moon? Isn't that don't they shoot them up like just in a big bullet? Yeah, I think so. It wasn't moving the story forward for yeah. me. And I got a little, it was hard for me to get into it. But once he goes into the water and then he doesn't come up, that's when I got interested and I stayed interested the whole time. Well, that's what I found so fascinating about it because, yes, there's a description in here that's similar to the deep ones. But really what I think this compares to Lovecraft with is the temple. Because essentially it's it's the same concept, which is there's this underwater city and there's a person that's trapped that has to go down, you know, that goes down there. But what Wells was interested in were these big ideas about critical thinking when it comes to religion and then also speculative science when it comes to the craft and right. his has got that rip roaring adventure kind of feel whereas lovecraft takes the same basic concept and just makes it horrifying right it even has those tones of religiosity at the end when he walks into the temple and it's glowing and right. both are very similar i think they would make a great back-to-back study hmm. in how the temperament of two authors can take a basic concept and really turn into completely different experiences i think about that in terms of people will say i don't want somebody to steal my idea or you know, nothing's original anymore. Oh, right, yeah. Look, 15 writers could take on the same topic and come up with 15 great stories. It's all in your approach and, and yeah. your aesthetic is. Absolutely. So what do you think he's trying to say with the story, or if anything? Well, I think that he just had some interests and just figured out a way to deliver it in fiction form. But the cargo cult thing, I do think that whether it's The Gods Must Be Crazy or this, is one of those great things to impress on young readers because it's a critical thinking lesson mm-hmm. to say, oh, look how silly these tribes are. A crate of Pepsi came down and they worshipped it. Mm-hmm. But doesn't that then lead you to question, well, what if the things that I believe are discarded pieces of something else? Right. I should reevaluate what I think as well. And so I think it it delivers that message really solidly. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I think it's just, man, wouldn't it be cool if there were fish people down there? I mean, there, <laughs> you know, there's so many stories that it's, let's sure. go to the center of the earth. I bet there's, there's a bunch of people there. Anything that's unexplored... Let, Nobody knows what's there, so let's put some crazy yeah. hybrid people there or some giant dinosaurs or something and then have fun with it. I agree. I think that's probably what it was about mostly, and it wasn't necessarily a heavy comment on religion. But what do you think he was going down there for? That was one of my – he goes, I'm going to go back and check it out. But what what was he really hoping to get when he was down there? Well, I think because the initial voyage was so stunning and it was not what he expected to have happened. And now that he has sort of an understanding of it, he wants to be able to look at it with a clearer eye. I mean, it's it's making alien contact. Well, sure. But what did he think was going to happen <laughs> when he got down there? I don't know. I mean, he could at least go down there with a little notepad and draw some pictures of him giving flowers to one of their kind. And then she falls in love. And then see how this goes back to yeah, the kids. Yeah, I see what she's But I mean, it just seems kind of not well thought out that... For him to go back down there by himself. Go back down there by himself with, I mean, he should have had some kind of maybe cameras or something that he would plan on collecting evidence with. Because if if I was that guy, mm-hmm. okay, I went down there. I saw this stuff. Nobody's going to believe me. Yeah. I need to go down there and get some evidence. That's true. And it doesn't seem like that he was doing that. It just seemed like he was kind of maybe seduced by the idea of being worshipped maybe or. Oh, that, you think he went back down there to be a guy? Well, he do, he would die. No, well, I'm sure he brought all kinds of extra stuff with him this time. So it didn't seem very well thought out to me and him being yeah. a scientist it should have been. But 
within the context of the story, it worked for me. I wasn't yeah. going, wait, that seems like a stupid thing that somebody would do. It just seemed like he became enamored with the idea of this underwater civilization and he wanted to just see more of it and look at it. Mm -hmm. But it didn't feel like he was thinking ahead to me. Yeah. And in the end, it ended up killing him. I'm excited about next week. I just read the story, uh, Robert Chambers, The Harbor Master. It's a good one, and I'm excited to be tackling it next week. It's a little bit longer, so I think it's going to take us a couple weeks to cover. Yeah. But uh, I think it'll be a good time. I want to thank our reader, John Hancock, for bringing it home, as he always does. Always does. And I especially want to thank our sponsor, Warpo. Remember, they are releasing, starts today, their Kickstarter for the new toy line, which is called Legends of Cthulhu. It's a four-figure set. you got to go check it out. It's beautiful. A cultist at Deep One, a spawn of Cthulhu, a professor. It's amazing. Don't forget, if you back at the spawn summoning level or higher, on checkout, send Warpo a private message, clicking the Contact Me button, and type in HP Podcraft. That is the secret message that will get you the awesome idol accessory. And this is honestly only available to people that do this code. It's not going to yeah. be available any other time. This is just for you guys. Just for you listeners. So it's extremely special. So please do that. Get it. And we are going to be back uh, getting with some more fishy monsters uh, next week as part of Creatures of the Black Lagoon. I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. 